Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 20th of March, 2023, and this is episode 293. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to the authors and historians, Simon Batten and Matthew Dixon, about their recent book on Bloxham School during the Great War. This book is published by Helion. Simon and Matthew spoke to me from their respective homes in England. Right, Simon and Matthew, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourselves and how you both became interested in the Great War? Um, well, I, I think really for for me, my journey through the Great War began with sort of so many of us as uh, an interest that my father had and uh, very sort of kindly uh, sort of shared uh, with me. He he was renowned for sort of exemplary timekeeping. We'd been away on holiday in France and we're driving back up to the coast. And um, this was sort of pre-days where you could just go on your mobile phone and sort of change your ferry booking and what have you. And for some reason, his timing sort of went awry and we were about sort of two and a half hours ahead of schedule and he uh, pulled off the motorway and uh, said oh we'll show you something sort of world war one uh related and we went up to uh vimy ridge and, and visited the, the the memorial there and then um we sort of wound our way back down through the park and went to uh canadian cemetery number two which was obviously the the, the first commonwealth war cemetery that i'd uh, i'd visited and i you know i can still remember it to to this day and this is sort of 35 years um later and it sort of i think kind of set a chain of uh, events in uh, in 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 motion and then we kind of spent every sort of uh, school holiday we'd always go over to france and belgium and it's really just sort of become from there and it's just as i've got older it's become more than just an interest and become an absolute sort of passion now and uh, i'm extremely grateful to my uh, my father for having uh, sort of introduced me to this uh, this this wonderful subject um and uh, it's you know it's uh, there's always just uh, so much to learn about it and so many more things to see no matter how many times you go you want to always see something different every single time and i think that's one of the exciting things about it so that's uh, that's really where, where where my interest came from and uh, mine came later in life i suppose once i started teaching history and uh, particularly teaching the history of the great war uh, at, at some point i got interested in the uh, the stories of the boys who uh, came from bloxham school and, and fought in the war. Uh, I've always been a passionate military historian. From an early age, I was uh, really fascinated in Napoleonic warfare. And again, as, as Matt suggests, that, that came from my father. I remember him taking me to see the film Waterloo when it came out, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s. And that was a very uh, formative experience. And I, I've, I've had a passion for military history since. Uh, at, at university, I, I did a, a history of war special subject as part of the, the history course, and that only increased uh, increased my fascination. So I, I'm going to propose just taking um, the next question, because I think it fits better. But I wonder whether we could start with some background. Where is Bloxham School? And can you tell us about its history up until 1914? Yes, so uh, Bloxham is a village in North Oxfordshire. Uh, a few miles outside Banbury, and the school was founded in 1860 
by a clergyman called Philip Reginald Edgerton. And it was part of a movement uh, which, which led to the founding of an awful lot of um, what were called public schools in those days, uh, mainly motivated by the force of religion, actually. There were a lot of people from Edgerton's um, part of the Anglican church, the, the high church end, the, the Oxford movement, who were concerned that there needed to be some schools which would cater to the so-called middle classes in Victorian England. There were clear signs that there was going to be a state education system on the way. And they were concerned that between that state education system and the, the old public schools, Eton, Harrow, Winchester, and so on, uh, that there was um, a danger that there would be a lack of religious education of church schools as they saw it. And that's really what motivates the founding of the school in 1860. But there, there are several others, uh, the so-called Woodard schools, uh, Radley, fairly close to us, that come from that same sort of uh, movement. So that leads me on to my next question is, why write a history of the school during the Great War? Well, it really uh, came about uh, back in the year, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in the year 2000. Uh, um, I had... Um, broken my ankle at work and I was I was off work and one of the things that uh, I had an awful lot of time on my hands and one of the things that I, I taught myself to do was how to use the internet and how to use a computer properly. I was a bit um, a bit of a Luddite about such matters up to, to this point and when I sort of did that one of the things obviously because I had an interest in the First World War I started looking at sort of great war related uh, websites and I came across sort of um, various websites that had been done by schools who were uh, sort of commemorating their uh, war dead and then obviously that got me thinking Thinking about Bloxham, obviously I'm, a, I'm an old Bloxhamist uh, myself, um, hence the interest. And um, I, I began to wonder whether, you know, there, there must have been men from the school who served there. I'm quite ashamed to sort of admit it now, but, um, you know, I, I think when I was a pupil at the school, I probably really didn't pay uh, very much more than a kind of cursory glance to the, the war memorial in the chapel, as, as I think many teenage boys probably uh, are, are the same. And um, what I did was I contacted the, uh, the school and the the archivist at the time was uh, was a man by the name of Shaw McClory, so now much uh, much uh, much missed, and known as uh, universally as Major Mac. And um, I uh, contacted him, and he said that there was indeed a, a list of names of uh, of um, men who'd fallen in the Great War, and I, I managed to obtain a copy of that. What it became sort of fairly apparent was that no one had ever really done a, a kind of really detailed, in depth kind of study of them. Then we had some uh, that's a sort of some very sort of basic biographical details of uh, of the men and obviously when they died and that sort of thing but um it really sort of um it went from there and it became uh, this project that's sort of become all encompassing really for the last kind of 22 years and it's um it's sort of taken over kind of pretty pretty much taken over my life for the last 22 years of, of doing it and um um I, I think what what happened obviously Simon uh, is uh, you know a successful published author and uh, we were talking uh, about the the website that I originally produced for for it and um wondered whether there would be sort of uh, what we could do is turn the information for the website into a book and and that's really where it came from Simon was very much the kind of the driving force behind the creation um of the book so what started out as a, as a sort of um uh, an all-encompassing hobby that has, has really kind of taken over as I my life for the last 22 years and the, and the book is the uh, the sort of the end result of uh, uh, of all of that um, all of that studying and, and all of that work really 
Yes, and I'd also want to give credit to Duncan Rogers at Helian Books, who was very encouraging of the, the project right from the start. And uh, it, it, for me, as I say, teaching about the First World War, it's at Bloxham School, it's become uh, a real resource for teaching the topic to, to youngsters. I think you can talk about the, the scale of losses in, in the First World War. You can talk about the, the bigger picture of the war. But until you get down onto a, a human level, it really, it really doesn't mean very much to a, to a young person studying it, I don't think. And that's why I'm always keen to get them to do some research of their own families and to, to come with stories to lessons. And then when we go on Western Front tours, it just means so much more if they can see a photograph of the person we're talking about, if they can actually visit the grave of one of these people that we're, um, we're discussing. Uh, uh, I, ha I have to say on sort of on, on that on that point that we raised about the photographs of, of, of all of the experiences that I had of researching the men. For me, one of the most incredible moments that will, will stay with me forever was the very first time that I saw the collection of photographs that the school had of the, the men. Now, I'd done a lot of research. I'd learned a lot about them, but I'd never actually seen what they looked like. And um, I met up with, with Simon at school and, and in the archives and, and saw the sort of the photo frames that they had and it was um it was an incredibly emotional experience to finally put a face to mm. these to these men and it's um, uh, it's one of the one of the great experiences i've had throughout the whole of this project and so because it suddenly brought that personal connection to it. these were no longer just names on a page or or, or or anything like that. It was actually being able to put a, put a face to the names. And I think some of them actually was quite strange because I'd almost in my head built a picture of what I imagined they looked like. And, and some of them, it was sort of quite quite close and some of them was, were, were very different as well. But it's, uh, it's, it's that's the one sort of experience, I think, that really still to this day sticks with me from, um, from, uh, from this whole of this project. So let's go to 1914. What was the school like uh, in, in, in the year of 1914, just before the outbreak of school? About, I'm sort of interested in its size, its sort of ethos, and what sort of, what sort of person was sending their son to be educated there? So the, the school by 1914 uh, had actually gone through some quite tough times. In, uh, in the 1890s, it was up to about 200 pupils uh, and by 1914, it was down to 80. Uh, and there were a number of factors, really, that, that helped to explain the, the, the difficulties the school was having. One was the uh, agricultural depression that was affecting the farmers that were a large part of the school's market. Second factor was the, um, the growth of state schools, board schools, uh, that obviously offered a free education. Uh, so there was competition from that. And the third factor, I think, would be uh, the impact of disease, uh, which Blo Bloxham and a, a number of other boarding schools suffered from quite heavily. Uh, Bloxham had troubles with its wells, which were, uh, I think, putting off some parents from sending their children there. The final factor, actually, would be the school's religious ethos. Uh, I mentioned the its founding as part of the Oxford movement. Uh, Bloxham had a reputation for being very high church, uh, big on ritual and uh, the place of the chapel. There was an awful lot of religion uh, at Bloxham, I think, and a lot of theology lessons. And the surrounding area, it's interesting, Banbury's football team is still to this day called the Puritans. And there was a strong reaction against 
um, the the high church practices at Bloxham. So the school was um, was as I say down to eighty pupils at the start of the the war. At the same time, I think it was starting to bounce back. The just the period of the war itself and just before saw quite a few moves that would see Bloxham um, become what nowadays we'd recognise as a as a public school, uh, a house system, uh, more competition with other schools in sport. And, and the really key one, which I think relates to the First World War, is the creation of an officer training corps in 1910. Uh, and that really uh, means that Bloxham get out and go on field days with schools like Rugby and Radley and uh, um, neighbouring schools, uh, but also that it, uh, that it is becoming more uh, military uh, from a school that wasn't really very military to start with. You, you asked about the parents that sent their children to Bloxham in those days, and we've got quite detailed figures. So just before the war, it would have been the case that a third of the parents, uh, the fathers, that's what we've got the record for, were farmers, about a quarter businessmen of various types, and the rest professional types, clergymen, lawyers, doctors, and some army officers. So let's get on to the main subject. Can you give us a, an overview of the record of service uh, for p- former pupils and staff at Bloxham during the Great War? I'm sort of thinking about a number that served and a number obviously that died and some proportion of officers and other ranks. Yes. So as I, I said, there were 80 pupils in the school when the war started, So, which actually increased as the war went, went on. Uh, there were 402 who served and of those 80 died. And so that is about 20%. And that is very similar to the experience of other bigger schools uh, of, of, that, of that type, board, boarding schools, uh, which is slightly higher than the proportion in the population as a whole. It's also a figure you have to be quite wary of because obviously there are a number of factors that explain that, that, high, uh, that high mortality rate. And one of those would be the high proportion uh, of officers so Bloxham's figures would definitely be lower than some of the big, more prestigious schools, uh, Wellington, Clifton, Cheltenham, some of those schools with an, a specific army class who were preparing boys for the, the army. But uh, it, it's still about 70% of those were officers and, and the 30% are the ranks. You've still got to be wary with that figure because with Bloxham, quite a few of those who ended up as uh, officers had started in the ranks and were then promoted. And the other interesting figure is that that 70% becomes much higher when you look at that uh, period once Bloxham had an OTC. Uh, You do get almost all of them then become officers, which implies that uh, the OTC was doing exactly the job that it was uh, set up to do. I think one of the things as well that's that's interesting when you look at the at the, the the breakdown of the men is that they actually in in terms of the army they actually held every rank in the army from private up to brigadier general, which for for a small school I think is quite remarkable to sort of have that have every sort of uh, tier of the of the military hierarchy kind of covered in terms of uh, of rank held. Yes, and the the most commonly held of those, um, not surprisingly, I suppose, was uh, were the subalterns, second lieutenants. So, tell us about some of the men that you researched. 
Uh, well, I think um, I, I think one of the things that's sort of particularly interesting ab about them is that uh, say they, they all came from sort of very different backgrounds, all have very different kind of life experiences, and um, I think for for me there are three that sort of really stand out to me. It's sort of particularly kind of interesting um, characters. There's uh, the, the first was a, a chap called Oswald Nixon. Um, now he served uh, originally in the Essex Regiment, and um, then like so many sort of men um you know sort of seeking this adventure decided to to join the royal flying corps this sort of like this incredible adventure of, of flight and that sort of thing and he was uh, the first uh, aviation casualty that that um, Bloxham um, suffered. And uh, the story itself is sort of really rather sad, actually, because he he went through uh, his pilot training, first of all, trained as a, an observer um, and then progressed up to, to a pilot. And he he qualified as a pilot, went out to France, and he was he had the great uh, misfortune on his sort of first patrol out um, flying his aircraft to run into um, one of Germany's greatest air races, um, a man by the name of Oswald Bolker was part of that Yasta too, and and the the inevitable happened that uh, Nixon was um was was shot down. And his uh, observer, a man, um I think he was Second Lieutenant Wood, um survived the crash, but Nixon um died. And one of the things that was particularly sort of uh, remarkable when we were doing the research on him is that found in the in the German archives the actual uh, photographs of the wreckage of um of Nixon's plane, and the photograph is actually dated on the day with the name uh, of. Uh, where it where it came down, so there's unquestionably it was um it, it was him, and then sort of further sort of research in the German archives, I actually sort of came across some photos of what appears to be Nixon's body, very badly burnt, that was taken, sort of these kind of rather macabre sort of souvenirs. Um, and what I think what's very sad about it is that his parents um didn't actually know what happened to him. There was this sort of uh, desire, I think, on their part that maybe he'd been wounded or he's taken prisoner or something like that. And of course, he he'd lost his life, and his observer um suffered very serious head injuries and, and um, was unable to sort of shed any light on it. And uh, Nixon's body was recovered um, after the war and he was identified by his dental records. And uh, he's now buried in, in Sayre Road uh, number two. But he was a very talented musician. And I think his two sisters donated a, a cup uh, to the school, which uh, I, I believe is still awarded to this day for, for music. Um, which I think it's rather lovely that there's that kind of connection sort of carries on um, to it. And, and I, thought, I sort of found it very, very interesting, as I say, because of um, obviously you know, this this kind of this excitement of joining the Royal Flying Corps and to lose your life on the first time that you go up as a, as a qualified pilot. It's really rather rotten luck to run into sort of, um, you know, until um, von Richthofen came on probably the greatest air race that Germany had. And, you know, they say the inevitable sort of end result happen but i think one of the, the the other sort of stories that particularly i found very interesting is is that when you look at uh public schools there's this kind of perception of this um this the officer class and you know this these these um, sort of ambitious keen second lieutenants and that sort of thing and there was a one uh, man who um actually served in the australian force by the name of, of charles hamill and um he was uh, in his 30s he was a, he was a private soldier and um i think if we by sort of stretching it to its its most point, he was a bit of a rogue. I think is uh, is probably the best way to uh, describe him. But um, he he came from an extraordinary family. He was the son of a, a very senior 
army officer. He was the, the grandson of a baronet. Um, and uh, he had um, he had uh, three uh, old siblings, two sisters and a brother. And one of his sisters was um, very, very involved in, in the, the, the women's suffragette movement. And I think, think actually wrote the um, wrote the, the lyrics to the um, to, to the the, um, the the famous hymn that goes with the the, the, the women's movement. And um, as I said, he was uh, Hamill was was about as far removed, I think, from the sort of stereotype of a, of a, of a subaltern. You know, as, as it's possible um, to be, he um, he was working out in Australia. He had sort of various kind of sort of menial jobs and labouring jobs and that sort of thing. Kind of very transient, sort of moved around um, Australia. And he uh, had tried several times to actually enlist into the military, but he was. Um, refused on the grounds of being morally unfit which uh, i think is quite remarkable and i'd love to know exactly quite what the um what the um the sort of uh, the thinking behind that was but um he he did eventually manage to to enlist into the army and he came up with this rather sort of splendid idea to avoid having to do any fighting by spending as much of his time as he possibly could in military custody for sort of various uh, offenses he arrived in england and went promptly went awol um and was then locked up and he sort of various uh, other kind of misdemeanors and um and uh, i i think uh, i think everyone sort of likes a, a bit of an a bit of an outcast and somebody kind of bucks the system a bit and i think hamill absolutely you know is is the kind of uh the 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 prime example of that and uh, it's, it's a bit of a rug unfortunately he did sadly lose his life um where his 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 plan to stay in jail for most of the war didn't come to fruition and, and he he did unfortunately uh, uh die in in combat and uh, i just think very briefly just the, the the last one really that that i find probably the most poignant of all is the man by the name of of philip davy now he was a captain in the 13th rifle brigade and he was actually the last of the the, the old boys to die in combat in the Great War. He had served since 1914. Um, he initially came out um, with the Canadian forces and he'd uh, served all the way through the war, was um, awarded uh, a military cross, um, a Croix de Guerre, um, the Chevalier de la Corne, um, a very, very brave man. And uh, he uh, was wounded several times. He lost uh, lost a finger off his uh, hand at, at uh, Festubert in 1915. He was a very talented violin player, and um, he lost a finger off his left hand, which must have been obviously extremely uh, for someone who was a musician to require your, your left hand to be able to play your instrument. Must have been you know sort of uh, um, difficult. But uh, say he he made it all the way through the war, and he was very sadly killed in action just seven days before the armistice um and it's it's just it's so near and yet so far and so sad but i think the real poignancy of the story is that um we have the copy of the war office telegram that was sent to his mother uh, and she lived in uh, a little village called normandy to tell guildford in in surrey and the telegram arrived on the 11th of november 1918 so we'll see as the bells were ringing out for the armistice and the news came through that your your only son who'd survived four years of war had lost his life just one week before the armistice and, and even now after 20 odd years it still it still brings a lump to my throat um that just the the, the absolute the tragedy of what that poor woman must have felt to be so close and to 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 get that news on the day when everybody is is celebrating. And for me, I think the biggest impact came from the stories of uh, of men whose whose relatives uh, we still have contact with, 
and who uh, some families I was I was able to get to know. Uh, two from uh, the local regiment, the Oxen Bucks Light Infantry, in particular. So uh, one was a young man called Basil Brooks. He lived in North Oxford, very well-established Oxford family. His father had been mayor of Oxford. He was an alderman, uh, a pillar of the local church, uh, and a, a big uh, and very happy family. We've got uh, large numbers of uh, photographs. Where I've seen the photograph albums from a, a very uh, well-heeled family, I think, a privileged uh, upbringing. Basil Brooks is virtually that sort of fresh-faced subaltern that Matt was talking about. He's a captain at the start of the Battle of the Somme. He's killed at Pozieres in, uh, in 1914. His photograph is what is, uh, he's on the front cover of the, of the book. He's a, among a group of contemporaries five of whom would, would lose their lives in the, in the Great War. And I've got to know his great niece and other members of the family, and that adds a real poignancy, particularly because they did not know a lot about the story of their ancestor and have got to learn more, uh, just as I've got to learn more about his family background from, from them. And then the, the other one, who's also a member of the same regiment, though a different battalion, uh, is, is one who's actually buried here in Bloxham, in the, the village churchyard. Uh, so his name was Harry Ayres. He was a bugler. Uh, he was from a, a musical family. And his name was not on the school war memorial uh, when we started this project. And it is now. It's one of a number we've added um, in our research. And I thought it was really important that his name should be on it. He was not a pupil at the school. Uh, we've also got some teachers on the War Memorial, but he was not a teacher either. He was a servant. He worked at the school as his parents did. Uh, and he joined up at the start of the war, like so many young men, without his parents' permission or knowledge. He uh, goes off with the, um, the Oxen Bucks to uh, the Ypres salient. And he's, uh, he's killed at Hooge in, uh, well, he's uh, severely wounded at Hooge in July 1915, he was brought back to Norfolk uh, Military Hospital and uh, his mother was actually able to, to, to visit him in, in hospital. Uh, but sadly, he died on the 7th of July 1915 and that was his 18th birthday. He, he was buried, as I say, with full military honours. The school's uh, core band played uh, at, at the graveside. Uh, but he was not on the war memorial. And uh, when I was able to establish that he had been working at the school before the war, I, I asked the headmaster of the school at the time, should he not be on that war memorial? His name was added. His family came along to a really emotional ceremony when, when the, the new war memorial edition uh, was unveiled. And again, since then, that's another family I've got to know well. And, and I think that's a really important story uh, in, in terms of uh, reminding us about the whole school community and the school's place in the, in the village. It's really interesting. A lot of people still talk about uh, uh, that the Ayres family are still around uh, the area. And uh, they, he's always referred to as Bugler Ayres. He was a, he was a private. But uh, uh, the photograph we have of him, which the family gave us to add to our collection, uh, he's, carrying a, he's carrying a bugle. Uh, in in the photograph, and he is just a young lad 
17 in the photograph, 18 when he when he died. And my final question is, where can people get the book from and also learn more about the Bloxham War Memorial and School? So uh, the book is available online from, from Helion Books. Uh, the, the book is called Remember Him at the Altar. Could I just explain what the title refers to there? So uh, this was Matt's idea for a title, and I think it's an absolutely inspired one. Uh, so one of the boys who we write about in the book was a, a server in the school chapel, Gordon Peacock, and he's killed at OVA uh, on the Somme at the beginning of July 1916. And a letter was written to the chaplain uh, asking that he should be remembered at the altar in the school chapel. The letter was written by one of his Bloxham contemporaries, a boy called Arthur Stevens. When the uh, next service was held to commemorate those who had fallen, uh, so by this stage it was the start of the next term, so it would have been September 1916, Arthur Stevens himself had also been killed. Uh, and you, if you go to Pozier now to the, the British military cemetery there, you can see St Stevens's grave, a matter of feet away from one of the young men I mentioned just a minute ago, Basil Brooks. And from, uh, from Pozier, obviously, you get a view down to uh, Ovier as well. Uh, and all three of those all three of those boys uh, appear on the front cover. But we thought it was important, really, to put the, the chapel at the centre of the story because it was the uh, centre of so much of school life. It's where the war memorial is and also a, a Second World War memorial facing it. There's also an archway at the, the front of the school, which was uh, the memorial that was put up in the 1930s to commemorate those. And I think the other key element in commemoration would be the photographs that Matt talked about. Now we actually, there were four boards with photographs of all the, of the fallen. Uh, one of those was lost in a fire in the 1980s. And uh, so we had to set about replacing all of those lost photographs, as well as the ones for the boys that we've now added to the memorial. Uh, and, and the story of that process is, is very much at the heart of the school, uh, of the, the book, uh, because that was not an easy process to find photographs for some of these. Um, You're trying to find a photograph of a man called Smith who served in the Royal Fusiliers. It has its challenges. Yes, and it, it's difficult to convey to someone who's, who's not involved in this sort of research the feeling that I think both of us had on different occasions when we found a photograph uh, that, we'd, that we'd been looking essentially for 10, 10 or so years for. The, the very last one was a boy called Hilary Pullen Burry. Uh, and I talked to members of his family. They had no photographs of him at all. Uh, we couldn't find any in the school archives. And then finally, I found a photograph that fell out of an album. Uh, and it had the names of all the boys in the photograph. Uh, but his name was written incorrectly, spelt wrongly. Uh, but by process of elimination, looking at who else was in the photograph and crossing them all off, uh, I worked out that that must be Hilary Pullenbury. And uh, so his was the last one that, that got identified. But it's, uh, it, it was a feeling of great satisfaction because, as I think Matt suggested earlier, it, it completes the picture 
it gives them back some of their identity, really. And of course, the family now have a photograph of, of that uh, um, of, of that lost lost boy, really. I, th- I think as well that the, the the sources of where actually this information comes from is is quite extraordinary on occasions. So there was a, uh, one of the chaps called uh, Reginald Harris, and uh, he uh, was attached to a, a trench mortar battery, and um, very difficult to find a, a picture of him. And it was a very very long sort of convoluted process. And actually, it was through a um, a conversation with the South Devon Fishermen's Benevolent Fund of of all things that we actually managed to. Uh, obtain a, a photograph of him and um it, it came he came from sidmouth down in devon and they had um after the war the the fishermen had uh, tried to raise uh funds to put a cross on the the quayside at sidmouth harbour to commemorate the, the the 66 men from sidmouth who'd lost their lives and um they had sort of set up this fundraising as part of the fundraising they had been provided with portrait photographs of um, all of these men and thankfully um, over time people have been very diligent with their filing and and, uh, and storing them and this this wonderful picture was sort of still in existence and um, say it's it's a very very special moment and, and as, as Simon says I think it's one of those things that if you if you um, if you get involved in this kind of research you get so sort of um, embedded in a project it just it's so exciting but trying to explain that to 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 people who are perhaps not doing that sort of type of research it's quite quite difficult to get sort of explain the excitement that one gets from uh, from the making these discoveries gentlemen thank you very much for your time thank you thank you very much thank you that's great you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorpe thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...